politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman standing at the ready to guard a new our liberties and our life itself. This is the era of transhumanism. Welcome back, Daniel Horowitz here at CR Podcast. Again, you could follow me on Getter, Daniel underscore Hurwitz, now that I've been vaporized on Twitter. Also follow our uh, organizational Twitter account, at CR, that's simple to remember. Email me, Hurwitz at startmail.com. If you want to understand what this fight is about, again, it's not even life, liberty, property, about being, being a human being. If there's ever a story that exemplifies perfectly where we are today, America 2022. It's the story I'm sure most of you are aware of by now in Ohio, where a 10-year-old girl was seeking an abortion after somehow being pregnant in a supposedly red state of Indiana because they have a dirtbag rhino governor that still allows abortions there. And on the way allegedly gets raped by an illegal alien. That, my friends, is America of 2022 in so many ways. Now, first off, just the abortion angle. Obviously, this is the insanity that we have three-to-one Republican majorities in that legislature in Indiana, and yet they still haven't banned abortion. And not only that, they've become an abortion tourist magnet for 10-year-olds. God have mercy just like it would be New York or California. So that's what that. But I wanted to use this story just to broadly talk about the illegal immigration issue today, and we're going to have coming up soon uh, Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Council, the Border Patrol Union, to give us an update at the border. But there, there's there's so many lessons here because a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, an illegal alien rapist. And again, we we really tripled in size since COVID. And that's why a lot of you have tuned into this show. But before then, we covered the illegal immigration a lot. And the point I've made is there's an epidemic of illegal alien crime that if the American people were made aware of how many of the heinous murders, drunk driving incidents, and child sex offense incidents in particular were done at the hands of invaders that should never have been in the country and often could have been caught. I forgot to check in this situation, but again, usually they're habitual and they could have been prevented. Because even if you have a weak, leaky justice system where you have jailbreak and they revolve in and out of the doors of, of, of the jail, but if they're a foreign national, the first offense should be the last one because they should be out of the country. But this is a classic example of what I'm talking about with the conservative movement and the Republican Party always being a day late, a dollar short, and then even when they address the issue, you know how we usually say it's no no deeper than skin deep? It's talking point deep. That's all they care about it. So it's kind of surreal that for 15 years I was called out by fellow, um, you'd be surprised, certain conservative commentators and Republicans as I'm, I'm a nativist, a racist, 
for talking about these issues. So now it's finally okay to talk about it. Now that we've reached the point where it's almost impossible to even redress it because it's just a wholesale invasion. You watch some of those videos of, of the Rio Grande River. It's unbelievable. This has never been done in human history where a country had, with all the resources we have has encouraged and allowed this to go on. But now they're finally like, yeah, look at what Biden's doing with the border, all the illegal immigration, yeah, yeah. Okay, what are you going to do about it? If you really meant it beyond a talking point, you would have every Republican governor join in a press conference and accentuate the problem every time hold a press conference when you have these incidents, which, by the way, happen every day. You, th- there is never a day that goes by that you couldn't have a press conference, unfortunately, on child molesting illegal aliens and other similar heinous crimes. A substantial percentage of the violent crime in this country, again, not that we don't have enough without it, and it's increasing uh, you know, in, in all demographics, but it's among illegal aliens, which 100% of that crime is preventable because they shouldn't be in the country. And you would commit that we are going to lock them up, we are going to enforce the law on our own, we're going to deport them on our own, and the public would side with them. We have our own Uvalde moments every single day, but the Republicans never do anything with them, other than a week like, yeah, vote Republican because there's too much illegal immigration. And the point you make is this. This is a ubiquitous problem. It's a cultural problem, I'm telling you. There was one report from only 30% of the North Carolina counties is like two years ago that found over an 18-month period more than 331 illegal aliens charged with 1,172 child rapes and child sex offenses. You could look it up in the Epoch Times about two is like about two years ago, an article there. And that was again a sample of only thirty percent of the counties in one state over eighteen months. One thousand one hundred seventy two child rapes and child sex assaults linked to illegal aliens. And those are the ones that they know of. And like I note every year, every year um, just one year's arrest by ISIS small forces. And that's with all the sanctuary cities and counties. They have caught illegal aliens charged with a total of 6888 sex offenses, 5350 sexual assaults, 1739 commercialized sexual assaults. Okay? So that's that's kind of a big deal. And this is cultural. According to data from Girls Not Brides, um, the child marriage rates for girls in Latin American countries from which we see most of the illegals is is extremely high. It's 41% in Nicaragua, 34 in Honduras, 30 in Guatemala, 25 in El Salvador. But that's the national average there. Again, the ones coming aren't the wealthier ones in the cities. It's the rural, you know, tribal areas, and, and that's going to be a lot higher. They admit child marriage tends to be happen more in rural areas than urban areas. Over half of the rural girls are married before 18. The point is, this is the culture. I'm telling you, everyone knows this. This is what they do. They think that's normal for a 25-year-old to take a 10, 12-year-old girl and just do whatever. We have... 
record numbers of, ch- of sex offenders being caught at the border. So we're averaging 450 to 500 a year that Border Patrol is catching since the Biden administration, up from like a 150 a year. And this is when the agents are tied down more than ever and not catching them. And you can imagine if you have a chi- if you have a sex offense record that you know the Border Patrol will catch, you're going to pay much more money to the cartels to be crossed strategically. So if this is the from the pool from which we're catching, oh my gosh, you could imagine the realm of what's out there, of what is being pumped into the country every day. And then on the interior enforcement side, Biden shut down interior enforcement in, in the first fiscal year of Biden, FY 2021. So typically we catch about 1,200 sex offenses or or among the illegal aliens we catch, there's about 1,200, or I'm sorry, 12,000 sex offenses, uh, charges, and, and convictions. Last year was down to 3,400, and that's because not because they don't exist. That means it's that amount of illegals who are sex offenders that are in the country and are typically caught are no longer being caught at a time when there's much more coming in than ever before. Think about that. And by the way, the 3,400 was FY 2021 when you still had a couple years of Trump and you know they didn't fully shut it down yet. For FY 2022, it'll be down to nothing. See, I bring you these facts every day. Imagine if we had a party and a movement that banged away at it. Not just as a cheap talking point, but buttressing and defending the rationale for action results, outcomes that protected the American people. But you don't see it as, oh, vote Republican. And then, you know what they'll do? They'll have some vacuous bill that they'll pass the House because they'll have control of the House. And it might be a good bill. But they know it won't go anywhere because it won't pass the filibuster in the Senate. Even if they control the Senate, then Biden has veto power anyway. Or whoever else they install instead of him, perhaps. And they won't fight in the must-pass bills and in the budget bills. Oh, so wait till we have a Republican president in 2025. That's going to be immediately. Immediately then, that's going to be the focus. Because then you're going to have the excitement of the Trump or whoever else is running. It's all about the game, the politics. It's never about doing what's right. And I don't want to hear, oh, states can't do this. It's not a suicide pact. The American people would fully understand it, I think already do, if they would get up there and say, we are going to comb through the state, find who is here illegally with a criminal record, right? That That's a, a, a very justifiable thing that that even the most liberal voters would understand and we're going to remove them and we're going to work together a bunch of states done and certainly at the border we've talked about the 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 two border states that are red allegedly red to uh have their own patrols create their own state guards doing this draft new people who would be willing to do it and and stuff it at the hole that's that's what needs to be done But again, this is the difference between my show and others. The others, you'll hear broadly the same thing. Finally, they're in sync with my broader message. 
but they won't make the case as emphatically and directly steer it. And we're only in this position because we weren't doing what I was fighting for since the 2005-2006 immigration fight. You have no idea we were called names and everything for this. There are so many illegal alien sex offenders, child sex offenders. The stories I could show you, if you would only find it, two-year-old, three-year-olds getting getting attacked. Um, but again, they cover it up because you know you could suspect someone's here illegal and you could see the signs based on the news stories, but you can't you know report it if you don't know know that, and you can only really get that information from the government. So under the Trump administration, we were able to work with a lot of people to get these stories out more. Now it's tough. But states have that information for the most part. And sheriffs and, you know, they could do this. Every state needs to, needs to publicize every major illegal alien crime. Drive a narrative. Not a one-off just to get a cheap talking point, vote Republican because Democrats are bringing in illegals. But as if you want to do something about it right now, look at what they're doing. We can't wait any longer. Cut off all the benefits. Again, we're going to round up all criminal aliens. We're going to deport them. Obviously, it's tough penalties for anyone who hires them. Choke it off. Let them go to California, but that's it. This could happen. This is so, so achievable. But let's get to our special guest to find out what's going on on the front lines. So it's been way too long. One of the casualties of the COVID stuff is we haven't been able to have terrific guests like Brandon Judd on before. He's been a friend of the show for a long time. He has served as Border Patrol agent really for, for over two decades, but the president of the National Border Patrol Council this past decade. And look, you know, I typically was always suspicious of, of government unions, but thank God we have this one because otherwise, you know, those agents would have no voice. And I want you guys to imagine the life of a border agent at this moment where you have a certain purview, a certain job to really protect the national security of this country and you're being tasked with doing the exact opposite of what your job is. Imagine what that would feel like. Oh, and then if you do your job, you will be punished and disciplined. I could not imagine being an agent now, and I figured we'd get a sense of what is going on there uh, in the eyes of an agent from Brandon himself. Uh, Brandon, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you have a busy schedule, but you squeezed us in. It's been way too long. Daniel, it's really good to be with you, and I, I appreciate it. I appreciate being able to talk to your listeners about what we're seeing on the border so that they understand, so that they get a sense of what's truly going on. We know that the mainstream media is not going to cover it. We know the mainstream media is going to cover up for President Biden. They do it on everything, and, and this is one of the issues that they, that they especially do it on. I mean, this is, this is the first chink in his armor. The very first thing that he did that he absolutely failed on was border security. And now it's coming out more and more of what's currently going on. And it's, it's just absolutely horrendous what we're seeing today and how it affects the American people is even worse than what we're seeing. So I want to start with that latter point, how it affects the American people. So I, I've, I've noted that if the American people would be aware of the degree of criminality 
that exists. A lot of these heinous stories, uh, the Ohio one, it got out that it was an illegal alien, but often it doesn't. It really doesn't. They would be so incensed and up in arms. Talk to us about the intake level. At the border level, what you see. People see, you know, streams of people flowing across the river. What does that mean in terms of criminal aliens who get across? What's really scary is when you look at the the, the number of people that were arresting and when we uh, fingerprint them and we find out what their criminal records are, we're arresting uh, people that are wanted for murder. We're arresting people that have been convicted for sex crimes, whether that's um, um, child molestation, which is the worst, I believe, the worst of any sex crime that can be committed, um, whether it's child molestation, whether it's rape, you know, all of these different crimes. We're, we're dealing with people that have rap sheets for um, burglary, for armed robbery, uh, for armed assault, um, for attempted murder. We're dealing with all of this. But what's really scary about that is the number of people that are crossing the border illegally and are getting away that we're not able to apprehend, that we can't find out what their criminal record is, and they're now here in the United States. These are the people that try the hardest to get away. These are the people that know, know that they cannot be caught and they're the ones that are running from us, and now they're here in the United States, and we don't know what that what those crimes are going to be. We're going to fill it down the road, maybe not immediately, but ultimately we will, just like what we did in Ohio. And then look at what happened in Florida just a couple months ago. That individual that crossed the border illegally claimed to be 17 years old. We weren't able to prove that he wasn't 17 years old. Health and Human Services ultimately released him to a foster um, family, and he ended up murdering the foster father. These are the types of things that we can expect, and that's how the American people are being affected. And it's a very scary situation, but what makes it even more scary is that this administration doesn't care. You know, one of the factors I'm seeing here that was different from the last time we spoke, the 2018-2019 uh, uh, border invasion, that one was driven primarily by the Ninth Circuit. In my opinion, uh, you had all those court rulings that centered around uh, these leniencies for family units. So, well, obviously, what do you see come across? Family units. They, it all speaks to the loopholes. Whatever you incentivize will come over. What I'm seeing, at least in the pictures, and it is coming up in the data, is a lot of single males. Is that what you're yeah. seeing? It, it, it is. And, and what happened in 18 and 19 through the courts is now happening by um, by executive orders or administrative orders coming from the executive branch when they say that they're going to exempt certain people from Title 42. That's who we're starting to see coming. They said that they were going to exempt Venezuelans. Well, we got flooded with Venezuelans. They said that they were going to exempt Cubans. We get flooded with Cubans. Um, Colombians, we get flooded with Colombians. Um, anybody from Eastern um, um Eastern European nations, we get flooded with Eastern Europeans. Um, Western African nations, we see that. Any time that you create a loophole that can then be exploited, you can expect that the cartels are going to, in fact, exploit those loopholes. And that's what we see time and time again. But in this particular case, as, as opposed to the 18 and 19 where it was the courts, this is actually the president of the United States that is causing it. So when when you're looking at this flow, um, I'm just trying to figure out, obviously we don't have numbers, but just whole picture to try to figure out the severity of this criminal alien problem. 
I'm looking at criminal offense categories. They have a couple of them posted on the website. Um, FY 2021, there were 488 sex offenders caught, and that was much more than any other year. Now I'm thinking, well, you have all the agents tied down doing the clerical work now, and we have such a massive flow, and I know if you have a sex offense on your record, I mean, you're going to be paying a lot more to the cartels to be successfully crossed. Is it safe to say that if we're catching 488, the number that's probably getting in is exponentially higher? It, it is. It, it, that's not – that's a, that's a simple fact. When you and, – and let's go back to FY21. FY21, we had a little over 400,000 gotaways. Right now, we're already facing nearly a million gotaways this year in this FY. And so it's, it's double what we saw last year. And so when you look at that, when you consider that we did apprehend 488 sex offenders in FY21, and now we have a million gotaways as opposed to 400,000 gotaways, you can absolutely consider that these criminal cartels are able to get their higher value products higher value people that have criminal records they're able to get them in and again they're going to cause harm it's not if it's when so what essentially are your agents doing on a given day uh, look at yuma uh when, when the, the cartels they know exactly um how they can get their products across the border what they recognize is all they have to do is cross large groups of of illegal aliens um it then causes the Border Patrol to deploy agents to um, those locations to take those individuals in custody. Then the Border Patrol agents have to be taken out of the field to transport those people back to the station, back to the stations. They then have to stay at the stations to process those people. At any given time, 90% of our resources in Yuma have been doing administrative duties rather than patrol duties. Then you look at Del Rio. There, there have been times where every single agent was doing processing, uh, I'm sorry, administrative duties rather than enforcement duties. RGV, they start their shifts. Uh, McAllen, the, the largest, I'm sorry, the busiest station in the entire nation, um, they start their shift with 50% of their resources doing administrative duties rather than enforcement duties. By the end of the shift, when the cartels flood the, uh, when the cartels flood the, um, the areas, the agents get taken out of the field, they end that shift, and they only have 30% of their resources in the field. And the cartels understand this. They know exactly what they're doing. That, so I know this is an uncomfortable feeling, but doesn't that mean that the agents unwittingly are actually being used to complete the criminal conspiracy of the cartels? Meaning not only are they no longer being able to staunch the bleeding and do their job, but they're actually being marshaled into the process. Yeah, they, the, the cartels are dictating what the operations are, and that's a very scary thought right there. Rather than the Border Patrol being out in front of a situation, rather than the Border Patrol developing operations, programs, and policies that will allow us to stay ahead of the cartels, the, the cartels are ahead of us. The cartels, by doing what they do, um, they're they're able to dictate to the Border Patrol what the operations are going to be, how the people are going to be deployed, where they're going to be deployed. The cartels at certain areas have complete control over our border. Have you seen increased hostility from the smugglers, or are they just trying to be businesslike? They know they're going to let them in anyway, 
and you know they'll just kind of say, "Hey, here we are," or are they fighting with agents? Yeah, this is how intelligent these cartel organizations are. What they recognize, if they start assaulting agents, if they start shooting agents, um, if they start doing anything like that, that then creates more of a spotlight on what the situation is. And then you're going to have a lot more uproar. So they recognize that right now they're fat and happy. They're able to get all of their products across. They don't need to resort to violence Mm. right now. And as long as they don't need to resort to violence, they're not going to because, again, they don't want that attention. They want to be able to work behind the scenes without giving a great deal of attention to their operations. You know, I've always felt over the years, and it's just being reinforced by everything you're saying, that it's not even so much an infrastructure issue. Everyone focused on the number of agents, the wall, the this, that. If you look historically, they'll come commensurate with how much and who you invite. (laughs) If you make it clear that you're not invited and you'll be sent back, you know, you'll have a limited amount of criminal activity you're always going to have to deal with, but they won't come. I mean, it seems more of a policy issue than a funding issue or an infrastructure issue. Daniel, it's all about policy. Everything is about policy. If we have the right policy, if you end catch and release, if you get rid of that magnet that draws so many people here, they will stop coming. They're not going to give criminal cartels thousands of dollars just to be sent back to their country or wait in custody pending a deportation or asylum proceeding. If we reward people for violating our laws, the cartels are going to be successful in advertising their services around the world. When you go back, when you go back to uh, the, the 90s, uh, the, the early 2000s, even the mid-2000s, uh, the, the vast majority, 95% of the people that we were dealing with were from Mexico, and they were all trying to evade apprehension. The cartels have now been able to go out and advertise their services and tell everybody, hey, it doesn't matter. You don't even have to try to get away. All you have to do is cross the border illegally, and they're going to let you go. Pay me $1,000. I will get you to the U.S.-Mexico border. You'll get released. And by the way, you're also going to get free passage to wherever you want to go, whether it's from the government or the non-government organizations. You're going to be able to get to wherever you want to go. It's our policies that have made the cartels so successful, and it can be our policies that shut this off. President Trump proved that, and it's been proven time and time again. When he implemented Remain in Mexico, it was like a light switch. From the, from the moment it was implemented, and we started ha- having people wait in Mexico pending their asylum or deportation proceeding, got rid of catch and release, they stopped coming. And that clearly shows that these people don't have a legitimate asylum claim. All they're doing is gaming the loopholes that our immigration system allows and that, our, and that the, an administration based upon policy also allows. You know, there's something I've been meaning to ask you for a long time about the union. Because typically, unions seem to be strong whenever they shouldn't be. So in other words, when you have all these outlandish disruptions of government activity because unions are protesting, sitting out, you know, refusing to work, they have all sorts of lawsuits because they, they, they have these speculative claims that the working conditions aren't good or they don't like what's going on. And they always seem to win. They seem to win in courts. But then when it comes to this, here's what I'm, I'm trying to understand your leverage. I mean, obviously, we all know the INA, which is in 8 USC, 
uh, you know, 1225 is where it says anything, you know, anyone not clearly and beyond a doubt entitled to be admitted shall be detained for removal proceedings. You're being asked asked to directly violate the INA multiple times. You're being given a work environment that is antithetical to the statutory moorings of that agency. As a union, do you have any ability to collectively refuse to do this or, you know, law an angle for lawsuits standing no for lawsuits? We, we so so yes we have standing for lawsuits in fact we have encouraged um uh, texas to file the lawsuit saying that they have to hold people in custody unfortunately the supreme court just shot that down um that was a very unfortunate decision i was very surprised um to see kavanaugh uh, go the, the <laughs> in the direction that he did i wasn't surprised to see kennedy go go in in that direction but i was very surprised to see kavanaugh go in that direction, but we have to comply with whatever the courts tell us. The other thing that you also have to remember is as law enforcement, law enforcement does not have the ability to strike, nor should law enforcement have the ability to strike. We're out there to protect the public, and if we're not there, then the public is in great danger. So we should not be able to strike, um, but we, we do have the ability to do other things. We have the ability to get out there in the public. We have the ability to work on Capitol Hill. We have the ability to try to effectuate tra- change, and we did. Look at what happened with President Trump. Look at what happened with Remain in Mexico. We were right there locked in, in lockstep with developing that policy. And, and so there are, we do have abilities um, to do certain things. What's interesting about law enforcement, if you look at the law enforcement, all law enforcement have, if you will, a union or association. The vast majority of these law enforcement associations or unions are conservative because we want to be able to protect the public. We're not advocating for striking. We're not advocating. I can't bargain wages. That's not what I do. What I serve as is I serve as a watchdog to what is currently happening, well, not just currently, but always happening in the organization. And I call the organization out, and I try to make those changes so that the American public is safer. But but what I still don't understand is why would you have to get Texas to submit a lawsuit? Why couldn't the border agents get standing to say, hey, you know, we're being tasked to violate the law? Because according to, and we have looked at that, we've gotten gone with many, many different attorneys, and they say you don't have the standing because there is nothing that is adversely affecting you. So Texas had to step in and say this is wow. adverse, adverse, adversely affecting our citizens in the state of Texas, and this is how it's adversely affecting. That's how they ended up getting standing, and that's how that lawsuit was able to, to proceed forward. It's funny. That doesn't seem to be a barrier with other uh, government workers and agencies, but but you guys seem to be stifled. And I think I remember last decade there was some sort of lawsuit on that where they said you guys didn't have standing or maybe it was ICE agents yep. as well. Um, it's it's interesting. It's it's always a one-way street. They, they get their outcomes. But speaking of Texas, uh, are you seeing a difference yet or is it too early with – Governor Abbott's new order to, you know, not just have the National Guard down there as, as, you know, watchers and facilitators helping the Border Patrol, but to start returning uh, illegals that they catch to the border. So I will be the very first person to say that I am so grateful that the governor is willing to think outside the box. I am so grateful that he's trying to do certain things. 
The problem is, is that he does not have the authority to return people to Mexico. What he's trying to do is he's trying to return them to the ports of entry. And and at that point, uh, the port of entry can then force these individuals to try to make a legal entry into the United States. And because they don't have any legal standing to be here, the ports of entry can then force them to stay in Mexico. The problem is, is the president of the United States. He has the authority, apparently, um, because no lawsuits have come about this yet, um, but he apparently has the authority to use what's called prosecutorial discretion to ultimately end up releasing these people anyway. But what what Governor Abbott does, um, even though he might not have the authority, well, he doesn't, even though he doesn't have the authority to send people back across the border, by doing what he's doing, it continues to get public attention. And the more public attention it gets, the better chance that there is going to be a change. And so he continues to think outside the box. He continues to try to come up with new avenues to go after this issue. The, the courts have already, in SB 1070 in Arizona, um, made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said states do not have the right to enforce immigration law. That can only be done by the federal government. And so Governor Abbott continues to look at it. Looking at that decision, Governor Abbott continues to look at, okay, how can I do it? What can I do? What is legal for me to do? And he continues to think outside the box, and that needs to happen everywhere. So final issue, and this is really the most important that everyone wants to know about, is the morale. I mean, how do you work at a job where you're tasked with doing what's antithetical to the vision of the agency, the vision of the Border Patrol, um, speak a little bit about the morale, how it's affecting the, the the daily job, and then in particular, this news story out now that, so last September, for those of you guys that weren't following this last September, if you remember, we had those, you know, several thousand Haitians piled up at the bridge in Del Rio, um, and there were mounted Border Patrol agents that were accused by the Biden administration of whipping uh, some of these illegals at that bridge. And, you know, of course, it was found to be false. So we thought that would be the end of it. But instead, they announced last week they're taking disciplinary actions against them. Could you describe, A, what's happening with those particular agents? What sort of, you know, how people could help fight back? And then what that's doing to the morale of the other agents? Yeah, let's, uh, that, that's, the, that's a perfect place to start is to so- talk about the horse patrol, and then it goes into the, the whole morale overall. The problem with that and the reason why my blood boils so much when we talk about this specific issue is just how it shouldn't happen this way in the United States. We should be a country of the rule of law. We should be a country where you look at things and you, and you say there has to be absolute evidence. The president of the United States prior to an investigation, convicted these individuals of a criminal act. He did not convict them of an administrative act. He did not convict them of something that was policy. He said that they scrapped those individuals. That is a criminal act. He knew it was wrong, yet he still he still said that he did it. The moment he said that they did that, they had to take action against these agents. They put them on administrative duties. These agents were not allowed to go out and patrol the border. They were not allowed to have any contact with illegal border crossers. They had to do. They had to spend ten months 
on administrative duties while a criminal procedure um, and administrative procedure went through. So there's two tracks of an investigation that goes on. You first have to investigate whether or not there was a criminal act that was committed, and there was not. They were cleared of that. Then they opened it up to see if there was a, a policy violation. And they came up, and I, it's, it's the most flimsy case I have ever seen in my career. I've never seen a, a more flimsy case than what they came up with. And, and based upon, and I can't get into what the actual suspensions are, but based upon the suspension, there is no way in the world they ever should have been placed on administrative duties. And everybody knew it. But because the president of the United States says those people will pay, they paid. And that's what happened. They were placed on administrative duties first. Now comes the suspension. Any time, any time an agent and, – and, and think about that for your listeners. If you had a boss that you knew was going to take action against you for doing your job, how would you be able to do your job? And that's what, that's what we're looking at right now. Everybody knows that this president does not like the mission of the Border Patrol. Everybody knows that this president doesn't like law enforcement, which would include Border Patrol agents. And everybody knows that he is going to take every chance he gets to come after law enforcement. And that's what he did in this case. And so when you look at how can there be morale, how could there be morale in anybody's job if you knew that you were going to get in trouble for doing your job? And that's what happened in this particular case. And so when you look around, the only reason, the only reason Border Patrol agents are able to continue to put that uniform on and go out and do their job is because they have a great desire to protect the American people. They have a great desire to serve. That's why most people go into law enforcement. That's why most people put that uniform on and go out and risk their lives on a daily basis. It's because they want to serve the American people. They want to protect this country. And that's why we continue to do it. So on this point of the horse patrol, one of the things that I noted at the time, because I found this fascinating, how quick they were to jump on the mounted patrol. And they were even saying there were suggestions, let's abolish the, the, the mounted agents. They wanted to abolish those units. And I thought that was fascinating because isn't it true that horses are among the most uh, effective assets in navigating that terrain and sniffing out smuggling. Well, they're, they're some of the most effective assets in almost anything that, that is due, not, not just um, chasing after individuals through, through rough terrain. You look at the way horses have been deployed by other law enforcement. They are a huge deterrent to crime. What, so, yes, there was a call to abolish the horse patrol, but instead of abolishing the horse patrol, instead of um, uh, making, you know, giving conservatives even more um, to talk about, what they're doing is they're limiting by policy mm. what the horses can do. So look at this. Look at the situation. It was the largest, and 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 not by a by a small amount. This was the largest illegal immigration event in the history of the United States. What happened in Del Rio? Secretary Mayorkas himself was there. He saw that the horses were being used for crowd control. He knew that that was going on, and he had no problem with it. Then this story comes out. 
President Biden says that these agents will pay. And now all of a sudden he's good with making policy change, saying, well, the horses can only be used for these um, certain things. That is ridiculous. And it and it makes um, the American people less safe because we're not able to use the horses in the same way that we've used in the past. It's funny. I think that's a really profound point because I've noted throughout the years, sometimes conservatives are off target and they take the most extreme rhetoric of the left and then they kind of pretend to fight that. But I say, hey, that's a straw man. So they had this moniker of abolish ice and i said that's a straw man they're not going to abolish ice they'll get their salary they'll have their office they won't shutter the office they'll abolish their purview which they're doing and and the border patrol as well so that's a very interesting point they won't publicly abolish the horse patrol but they're denuding them of their most effective job their most effective use um i I guess they're going to go after the dogs next (laughs) you know those are also very effective um, oh my gosh. Wow. I don't, I don't know how you keep doing this because it's just like, I, I, I feel so bad. I, I spoke to a lot of agents, um, during the 1819 crisis and they were very demoralized and they wanted to go to ice. A lot of them because ice at the time under Trump, uh, they were doing some good work, really turning the corner on interior enforcement programs. But now it's like, where do you turn? <laughs> yeah, they're all, being uh being besieged by this administration everybody's just crossing their fingers that that there's going to be a change um that elections have um consequences and that hopefully something happens that the right people get elected so that um we don't have to deal with this anymore so that law enforcement the handcuffs are taken off the good guys and they're transferred to the bad guys that's what we're hoping that's why we continue to do the job is because we know that there's ebbs and flows. We know that the American public right now is pushing back. We know that the American public does not want the abolishment of law enforcement. And, and as they understand that, as you said, that they're taking away um, uh, policies and programs or operations so that, the, so that police and law enforcement as a whole can't be as effective, they get upset. The public then gets upset, and then elections can have consequences, and that's what we're hoping to see. And like you said, it's really all a PR war. It's not. There's nothing legal. The laws are there. They're not being followed. They're being violated. It's a matter of drawing attention to this, so that's why it's so important that we communicate with you. We get the stories out, and let's keep this up. So glad to have you back on like the old days, but hopefully next time under better circumstances. God bless you for what you're doing. Thanks, Daniel. It was good to talk to you. So again, folks, that was Brandon Judd, the Border Patrol Council president. Um, kudos to him. You could hear the passion. He really wants to do what's right. Just want to mention a couple of things here uh, based on the interview before we go on uh, to the end of the show. He mentioned about Governor Greg Abbott. Now, you have to understand, he obviously has nobody to work with. Okay, so he has the president of the United States that's against the Border Patrol So my job is to demonstrate the subterfuge of Greg Abbott and what he's trying to fool people with. Uh, He's obviously wants to appeal to Greg Abbott. So, you know, he praised him and everything. Um, You know, some of you will notice that it's unlawful. He's just doing what's lawful, which is dropping them off of the border. I wasn't going to sit and debate Brandon on 
the invasion clause of the Constitution, which is crystal clear. He's working more statutory framework. He's the head of you know the Border Patrol Union. He's not going to publicly advocate for the state to do that, right? His job the point is the federal government is not doing its job. So I, I just don't want to get these emails. Well, you know, you have these guests on and whatever. I have them on to give you a sense of what it's like to be a border patrol agent. I can't, you know, police everyone's legal and political views. Um, it doesn't, you know, but but the point is very clear that it's not going to work if you listen very carefully. His point was, let's say the problem was logistics, that we just don't have enough agents. So then you marshal in the Texas national guard and they'll help return them so that the the agents at the ports of entry could declare inadmissible and remove them but obviously that's not the problem the problem is not a logistical issue it is a um it's not a man manpower issue it's a political issue where the administration doesn't want to get rid of them in fact they want to bring them in so it's going to be meaningless if you don't Put them on the freaking other side of the border. And it's ridiculous that he tries to do the minimal amount to indulge our talking point, but uh, not solve the issue. Now, maybe it will have a deterrent. I don't know. But again, this is the point I want to make about Greg Abbott. The other point I want to make from this interview is um, law enforcement. I want to make a broader point about law enforcement. That... You have to live in the world that we live in, and you have to operate and uh, craft your strategies based on the world you live in, not on the world you want to live in. And in the world we live in, law enforcement are now dissuaded from doing good things, and they are incentivized to do bad things. And what I'm telling you is this reflexive message of back the blue is only going to harm us. And I think we need to start saying, wait a minute, if law enforcement will not do what it's supposed to do, then you know what? Yeah, buddy, we'll call your bluff and abolish it. But then we're going to abolish all of it. And what I mean by that is, if you noticed, he was saying, obviously, they're, it's, it's very chilled in terms of their ability to do things. Now they know you're going to get punished for doing your job. Now, I want to extrapolate that to regular police. A lot of you have seen this week um, the appalling video came out from Uvalde, basically showing what we suspected the last couple of weeks, that in fact they were on the scene very early on. Very few kids should have died. They should have gotten to him pretty much from the beginning, even could have gotten to him outside before he started shooting inside. And they did nothing. There is actually one um, indelible image of... Uh, an officer um, using Purell or something like sanitizing his hands rather than shooting. And if, again, if that doesn't exemplify where we are in America today, and I'm not trying to excuse those particular officers. I want, you know, for the cowardice, but in general, this is the message that is going across. I can't tell you the materials people send me in law enforcement that they have, that they're trained in. This is what they're trained to do. They're trained as social workers, okay? Except for when they're going after us, then they'll be vicious. But that's what I'm telling you. It's, it's kind of like, oh, I'm pro-military, so let's increase the military's budget. Well, if you don't solve the policy problem, then the military is becoming a malignant force, unfortunately. I, I hate to say it. And it's the same thing with law enforcement. 
So to me, the lesson of Uvalde, and, and, and based on what we heard with the Border Patrol, is if we don't have a roadmap to fixing it, then I don't think this reflexive message of back the blue is particularly helpful. Okay? So again, this is what it means to think strategically about policy outcomes rather than the nice, good-feeling good talking points. And, and, and back again to the legal immigration issue. Everyone's going to be like, oh, it's terrible. Look what Biden's doing. But anything short of state deportations, state enforcement of interior enforcement is a waste of time. Again, Brandon, I don't bring him on for political and legal advice. It's for what is it like to be a border agent? He's a federal agent. He's not going to get up there and say the states should do it. Right? That doesn't reflect on his character or you know, take away from the good work he's doing. And it's not it's not it's not in conflict with my political message to bring a guy like that on to to give us a sense of what's going on at the border. But, you know, you count on me for the politics. I bring on people for their other expertise, for the facts on the ground. And then it's our job to say, hey, based on that, what are we going to do with it? So, again, I just want to make that clear because, you know, I'll have people on um, for covid for other things. And, and, you know, they might say one or two things that are in conflict with what I'm trying to push, but it doesn't uh, change that point. Now, today the House is voting on the NDAA. So did you know that the House GOP leadership is whipping in support of the NDAA, even though it is authorizing all the woke programs and the mandates on our soldiers? Okay. What is the point of our political existence beyond some stupid talking point? What is it we want to accomplish if we don't focus on this stuff? This sounds like a little bit of inside baseball to you, but I can't overstate its importance. Republicans are the most energetic, intrepid, and ideologically driven when they're in the minority, especially in the House, because you don't have the ability to filibuster, you can't really do anything, right? If you're in the minority in the House, you're done. So typically, when you're in the minority of the House, you vote against everything, reflexively. It's easy to do. They're whipping the NDAA, even when they're not responsible for its passage, because they're in the minority, they're whipping in support for it. How much more so when they get into the majority and they have to govern, do you think they're going to hold up the NDAA over fixing the military policy issues, first and foremost, the mandates? No. I'm trying to warn you guys ahead of time to draw that line in the sand and focus on the policy fights now, before the election, and after the election. Because if you just focus on the election, I promise you nothing will change. They're not even showing that they're going to change. They're not even pretending that they're going to change. They won't talk about it. And of course, they won't talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And that's the terrible death and destruction from these shots. There's a new analysis out at the Daily Skeptic. There's, there's a ton of data from the Office of National Statistics at the UK that is showing excess deaths. Everyone knows that. And again, this is a, very, a number of, uh, uh, another one of these 
sickening on the one hand, but intellectually satisfying data points because it really harmonizes many, many disparate data points we're seeing and honing in on a very similar story. Just over the last 10 weeks, there were 8,750 more deaths than, than usual from causes other than COVID. And cardiovascular looms large in those. Again, we talked about earlier this week in Canada, we saw that. But I, I wanted to give you guys a sense of what that number is. 8750 in 10 weeks. If you would extrapolate those non-COVID excess deaths for an entire year and then extrapolate it about times five for the population of the U.S., it would get you about 220,000 excess deaths for a year in the U.S., and that is very satisfying because the number we've honed in on from vaccine deaths for for uh, almost a year and a for no not almost a year and a half since the beginning of the vaccination program was you know maybe three fifty it's in the threes and the reason why this is satisfying is because this two twenty for for twelve months but it's not a good extrapolation because this is the last ten weeks and the last ten weeks. There's, I mean, how many new people have been vaccinated in the UK in the last 10 weeks? So the fact that you're having this many excess deaths now, meaning the point is, if you go back to the time of the vaccine take-up, and then certainly August, September, October, the big booster take-up, the rate was much greater than over the last 10 weeks. Because those were the short-term. There's, The point is, there's a ton of long-term deaths, and that's what we're starting to see, the long-term ones. But it's now it's mainly long-term and not the short-term. So what I'm saying is this is yet another data point that makes it a very reasonable assumption that several hundred thousand people have died so far in the U.S. from the shots. I, I, I can't even begin to give over to you with any words of expression and adjectives in the English language how earth-shattering earth of a story that is. And yet you're not allowed to talk about it. Nobody will talk about it. And I'm left as the pariah that is off social media because I am talking about it. But you tell me, in terms of a right to live, what is more of an important story? You look at New Zealand. New Zealand now has the highest COVID death rate in the world. Number one, I think they just surpassed Taiwan. Their entire adult population was vaccinated by the end of February. Okay? They have the highest COVID rate. And um, New Zealand also happens to have a very high excess mortality this year again is well beyond the COVID deaths and you see this in every single country the more you inject the more you infect it's everywhere there's data from Israel 
each one of these things should launch an immediate national investigation. Yet, name me the Republican governor that's even willing to pull the shots for babies. This is from Dr. Avi Dashlau in Israel. He pulled straight off their um, Ministry of Health website. It's straight up there. It's in Hebrew, but you could see the like charts. As of July 11th, they have what they call severe patients. I don't know if that means ICU. I'm not sure how they define that, but severe patients, and that's a very important distinction. Right, because you know you're not dealing with the incidentals; they're not really there for COVID. You know, it's it's Omicron is very mild for most people. Okay, so this is we already know. I mean, everyone agrees that the more you inject, the more you infect. But let me tell you, it prevents so much severe COVID. Rate per hundred thousand, fully vaccinated, six point one per hundred thousand are in the hospital with severe COVID. Partially, 4.3. Unvaccinated, 2.2. And you're seeing this again and again and again everywhere you go. Um, Dr. Claire, from our pathologist from the heart group in, in the UK, she made a very important point that it, it's just laughable. So the problem is they always say, like, well, it would have been worse. It would have been worse. It's 85% effective against critical illness. So, wow, it would have been worse. So she made this point. There were 6.5, so 6,500 COVID deaths in those over 70 in the UK in April and May, those two months. She says, if you're telling me vaccines prevented 90% of deaths, that means that there would have been 65,000 deaths without them in that cohort in just two months. She has a really good point. She notes that there were a total of 91,000 cases in that cohort. That would mean that the CFR, the fatality rate, would have been 66%. Okay, which, which even Ebola isn't 66%. So, I mean, like, th- this is the type of crap that these people could just continue asserting and, and nothing matters. Nothing matters. Then let's go on to the other big national emergency, which is Paxlovid, the other bioweapon from Pfizer. Gee, before we make something else dangerous and ineffective, and not only ineffective, but mutagenic, shouldn't we actually call a red flag as we start to see it? This is from just the news. The FDA's expansion of the EUA for Pfizer's COVID-19 and antiviral pill could play a role in accelerating mutations, a new research suggests. Last week, the regulator authorized state-licensed pharmacists to circumvent doctors. We talked about that. Um, uh, to determine if it's safe after reviewing the most recent reports of laboratory blood work for kidney and liver problems. Medications already taken. It's literally practicing medicine for a pharmacist to do this. But um, where is this? Let me find the study here. But it turns out there's a preprint study by virology researchers at Austria's Medical University of Innsbruck 
which shows that it's basically mutagenic. Um, it, it applies selective pressure to induce mutations. And they identified several mutations in the protease that confer resistance and discover the mutations predicted by our method already exist in SARS-CoV-2 sequence depositions. Who's to say it's not responsible for some of this stuff? How could we not? This is always a concern when you come up with antivirals. This is what I told you from day one when they were knocking the regimens by the Patriot doctors. Though They're not antivirals. They're for parasites. They're for malaria. They're for the rheumatoid arthritis. But the point is, they tr- what, what they did is mainly what, what their job was to address the pathways that create the problematic inflammation. And it's like the fact that there weren't that they weren't antivirals was good. For those of you who never heard my shows, I did a lot of the shows on this last year, but real briefly to summarize, there's a reason why we don't have too many antivirals around. Like usually you'll go a uh, doctor, you have a virus, like it's a virus, we don't really have anything for you for a bacterial infection, we have antibiotics. Now, we talked about obviously the importance um, a lot of the doctors we've had on the show with COVID, you do want to prescribe an antibiotic, especially uh, certain strains spawn bacterial infections as well. So you're not treating the virus, but you're preempting bacterial infections, secondary infections, fine. But the reason we don't have antivirals is because antivirals are problematic. We haven't really cracked the code to save a lot of them. A, they're not safe. Like the, the, like the genre of AIDS drugs, as we well know with Fauci, what he's done with that, they're not safe. And also they're mutagenic. It's kind of like a lot of Patriot doctors feel that, uh, chemotherapy has widely been a scam because it might have a little bit of initial efficacy, but then it, it, it the cancer comes back uh, more aggressive. Whenever you challenge um, viruses and cancers, things like that, it will it will hit back at you and it will get stronger. So the best way is to either find a you know passive mechanism that starves it, denies it access, or at least deals with the inflammatory response and, and, and preempts and treats some of the problematic symptoms. But antivirals, we just really haven't cracked that code. Okay, we just, we just, you could boost your natural immune system, and that's what we try to do with this boost your vitamin D and other things and glutathione, prevent inflammation. But you can't directly engage in antiviral activity. You you'll create mutations, and that's what we're seeing with half-assed antibodies with the vaccines, and that's what we're seeing with Paxlovid. That's what everyone admitted Molnupiravir did, which is why it's not being given Merck's drug. But yet it's still authorized, which is an unbelievable story in and of itself. But again, here I am stuck, the one without a platform. But then again. I have you, and that's all I need. I thank you every day for that. Please send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. This is different from anything. This is truly independent. Um, We don't carry water for anyone. It's the whole truth and just the truth. So help me God. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.